Hi everyone and welcome to another episode of Let's Talk Risk with Dr. Naveen Agarwal. Each week we talk about a topic related to risk management of medical devices in a very casual and informal way. This is not a webinar or lecture, rather our goal is to talk about key topics and challenges in a very informal way and share best practices. I'm your host Naveen Agarwal and I'm the principal and founder at Achieve where my personal mission is to help you achieve success in risk management. In this episode, I'm joined by Ian Seely to talk about the difference between the terms practicable and practical when it comes to risk control measures. This is an important but very challenging topic for risk practitioners because it directly affects our ability to develop and defend a risk acceptability policy. We had this conversation in front of a live audience as part of a LinkedIn live audio event. You're about to hear a recording of our conversation. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. With that, guys, I'm so excited to welcome Ian Seeley today. Uh, Ian and I have been having this conversation for uh, a while now. Uh, we share a lot of common interest in risk management, a lot of passion for this topic. Uh, so I'm so excited to welcome Ian. And um, instead of me telling you guys all about him, I'm actually going to invite him to introduce yourself briefly to you guys, and then we'll start our conversation. So Ian, welcome, and thank you for joining today. Thank you for having me, Naveen. Um, so anyway, yeah, my, my name's Ian Seeley. Um, where shall I start? When did I become interested in medical devices? Mm -hmm. um, I was going to say I was 17 years old when when the, when made this decision. I was visiting, well, I was looking to, to decide uh, what to study at university. And I was visiting my grandmother in hospital. I saw a sign that said medical engineering. And I thought, that sounds brilliant. So I went back and checked the what's called the UCAS guide, which is the guide for un university um, courses. And there was one there. And since then, I've varied in and out um, at sort of pure medical devices. Uh, I've worked for the, the, the UK National Health Service, worked for local government, worked for the Department of Health, uh, worked for the Medicines and Healthcare Products Regulatory Agency, uh, various manufacturers, and currently um, I'm doing consultancy, um, quality and policy and regulatory. Very nice, Ian. Very nice. And, you know, one, one thing that I really love about the way you talk about risk management is from a practical point of view. And this is going to be our topic of discussion today, right, in the context of risk controls, which can become very confusing. This whole notion of practicability versus practicality, we're going to dig deeper into that. But before I go into it, Ian, you actually posted the announcement about this event uh, with a picture of the movie Gladiator. I did, yes. Uh, what were you thinking? How it applies to practicality or practicability? Uh, share that with us a little bit. Well, yeah, it, it's quite interesting, and, and the link isn't isn't especially strong. Um, but I, I certainly think the link's there. So, when when I'm thinking to myself about what 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 is risk, um, and I, I, as as we we were discussing just before we came on air, I have an interest in history, mm -hmm. um, and I think the the, the gladiator, the, the the gladiator picture. If I were to say the the name Marcus Aurelius. Most people think Russell Crowe saying Marcus Aurelius had a chap who followed him round, whispering into his ear that he was a mere mortal. Um, but 
that that's the fiction of the film. Uh, the Marcus Aurelius in the film isn't the Marcus Aurelius of history. Uh-huh. Um, Marcus Aurelius was an emperor of Rome. Um, but aside from that, he was also a Stoic philosopher and wrote possibly one of the most important uh, philosophical texts in Western philosophy. Um, and it's a book called uh, Meditations. And he never wrote it to be read um, by any anybody else. It was, it was his own, we call it a journal, him, him coming to terms with he, his place as um, a, a subject and also an emperor of Rome and the things he had to do. And I suppose to a certain extent, he faced a lot of risks, not necessarily the risks that, yeah, you know, uh, what would you call it? You know, et tu brute, you know, and you brutus. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. But, you know, it, it was a, it was a large empire, and within 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 that the, the work that he did, which has obviously been published after his death, um, because he died in um, one hundred and sixty one. Um, there's there's um, what what's called his his meditations, and there's one in in book six. In book six, it's called Meditation sixteen. That to me really strikes a chord with what we think about when we talk about what's practicable. Um, so, and I'll, I'll read it out to you. And it, it, what he said, what he said to himself, because this was a note to himself, he said, do not imagine that if something is hard for you to achieve, it is therefore impossible for any man, but rather consider anything that is humanly possible and appropriate to lie within your own reach too. <laughs> Interesting. So that's how he viewed, that's how he viewed what, what, what was, what was, you know, possible, what was humanly possible and almost not to put himself up a barrier to say, oh, I can't achieve this. I, we can't achieve this. Uh, we can achieve it together. Ju- and if it's impossible for me, it doesn't mean it's impossible for somebody else. And that, I think, is, there's some sage words there for any man who makes five true goes, oh, it's impossible. Well, somebody is going to come along at some point and maybe doing it right now mm-hmm. to prove that it actually is possible. Or, or, that, or, or not take the shortcuts, Right. Just, just stretch ourselves to say we're not going to yes. we're not going to do just what's convenient and uh, quick and easy. Uh, so let's talk about that. You know, because when I look at ISO TR twenty four nine seventy one, there is a good discussion about what is practicable versus what is practical. I, I didn't yeah. like that, and I would love to invite your thoughts on the difference between the two and why we should care as risk practitioners. Okay, so if you were to open up a copy of uh, Forty-nine PDF one. It'll go through it manually, um, and search for the word "practical." It'll appear precisely zero times. <laughs> it, it, the standard itself is not concerned with the practical. Um, it does mention the impractical <laughs> twice, but that's only Annex A. Um, maybe that's a point we can come on to. But it mentions the word "practicable" seven times. But there's a little caveat that needs to go with that. So the the, the word practicable is mentioned once at note one to subclause four point two. It's mentioned once in subclause seven point one, once in subclause seven point four, and four times in annex A. So if you apply the the the, the ISO approach to that, because it's an ISO standard, um, so the, the the notes and the annexes aren't normative to the standard, um. To, to quote ISO's word is in ISO standards notes um, are with, without exception non-normative. So anything that's not cl- in a subclause or a clause falls out of place. So really, practical is only mentioned twice at subclause seven point one, 
and so clause 7.4 and that's how it comes into um its its relevance to risk controls mm-hmm. how should we read it and because you know I, i'll be honest with you yeah english is not my first language i had a hard time understanding things when i was growing up and as a result i pay a lot of attention to what the words mean how should we read the the word practicable in the context of risk controls well let me share you something with univeen um i would say that english isn't my first language it is but i i struggled greatly growing up um so this is something that i can i can empathize with with anybody who's looking at it from um you know I, as english as a second language it is to be honest having studied other languages i think it's a bit of a mess <laughs> but so in in terms of how I'd look at it the way that I've gone about it is looking at what the definition of the word actually is <laughs> yes um so um so I've gone back and I I've, I've made a note of note of this for the purpose of this conversation I can't remember it's off the top of my head so I've gone to the Oxford English dictionary um so I've actually gone to the 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 full Oxford English dictionary the 20 volume version <laughs> um not a shortened version and what it says and there's a lovely nugget of interest here um so it says definition is capable of being put into practice carried out in action affected accomplished or done feasible so it's any of those things mm-hmm. but i just thought actually let's have a quick look look back in back to history and, and see where, where where was this first used and it was it, just, it was a word first used in the 17th century mm. and it was specifically used in 1670 um and if i were to tell you it was actually a word first used in related to health that ah, might be quite interesting. Yes, interesting. I love it. Yeah, yeah. It came as a surprise to me. And when I saw that, I thought, oh, that's great. So hopefully not too boring. I can tell you exactly when it was first used. So yeah. it was used in a book uh, published by somebody called E. Mainwaring. Now, there's probably going to be a lot of people saying, oh, Mannering, Mainwaring is said Mannering. But by the <laughs> spelling of this, it's, it's Mainwaring. And <laughs> the, 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 the book, the, 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 the title of it, it's, the first part of the title is Latin. Uh, it's called uh, Vita Sanga Elonga, so a, a, a healthy and long life. Um, and then the subtitle is The Preservation of Health and the Prolongation of Life uh-huh. Posed and Proved in the Observance of Remarkable Precautions, which is a word that's relevant to, and Daily Practicable Rules Related to Mind, Body, blah, 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 by E. Mainwaring. So what I'm hearing them say is that we should be able to put this in practice. Yes, is that it right? Something that, it should be something that can be done. So, is that not confusing with practical? Because I got confused in this a lot. So now, in forty nine seventy one context, we are talking about practicality as being something just convenient or easy. Um, I, I think I think we should probably not talk about practicality. Um, I mean the. The the, the the technical report 24971 does talk about practicality um, and uh, what it says is it says the practical I, mean, I can read, read it to you because I have it have it printed out here it talks about um, practicability and then it says this is not to be confused with practicality being practical which refers to measures that are useful or convenient Um and then it goes on about the two components of practice. So, so what, I, what I'm reading, Ian, tell me if I'm wrong. What I'm reading here is that their intent is for us to consider anything that can be put into practice as something we should consider. It's on the table. It's not off the table just because it's inconvenient or costly or expensive. Is that right? Is that how we should look at it? 
Um, it depends which lens you're looking through. Um, there will be a diverse uh, um, range of opinions on that one. I think if you t if you were to take the actual definition of the word practicable um, and parse it, um, it it doesn't necessarily imply there should be any cost element to it. Um, that's not to say that I don't agree that mm -hmm. it should be. If gotcha. it, it, sorry, if I made that clear. It, no, yeah. no, that's all right. So yeah. I think I think bottom line because I want to kind of focus on the next logical question about this is that as risk practitioners, we are being advised or let's say uh, sort of guided by this uh, standard and guidance that, hey, we should consider everything that is possible to be put into practice without worrying about convenience or cost because our intent is to try and reduce the risk to as far as possible or as low as possible or all those other terminologies that are also I find confusing. So the end goal is to reduce the risk, correct? And we are being Absolutely. asked to consider all possible scenarios, all possible options. Is that a good way of looking at it? Um, yes, I believe that it probably is. I mean, would I just, 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 just like to quickly loop back again, yeah. just on, on in terms of this, because um, in terms of the practicability, there is there is a school of thought that that there is this, um, oh, what's the word? Reasonably practicable. Yeah. Um, which can be found at note one to subclause 4.2. But taking the ISO approach, that the note isn't part of the standard. It's just, just somewhere where you can find extra information or something that's going to help you understand what's what's written in one of the requirements. So the reason we're practicable is really something that a manufacturer needs to consider when, when determining their own policy. Yeah. So it depends what what policy a manufacturer can apply Got when you. it comes down to what 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 should be considered i appreciate that sort of a longer one wind long-winded way around that answer but in in terms of the 7.1 7.4 the standard doesn't use reasonably practicable it simply says practicable mm, um, i see so let's say let's play this out scenario right let's say we are setting a policy that we should reduce risks to as far as possible because we want to comply with umdr Let's let's put it simply for our purpose of our audience. How should they read this practicability versus practicality in the context of their risk policy, which is now for reducing risk as far as possible without adversely affecting the benefit risk ratio? I don't think there is a consolidated view. <laughs> um and I think it would very much depend who you'd ask, but um I'd sort of go 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 back into history that this this sort of dichotomy of views existed under the the directive based system. Um, I think the like obviously the, the the people who draft the legislation have got their own view about what it means. Obviously, they're not the deciders on what that means. That's the courts. Um, notified bodies had their own view, um, and there was a document published. Um, it was a consensus paper by the notified bodies recommendation group, which which took a very much um, more. Um, lenient view that could involve cost um it's it, it's hard to answer and i wish i, I wish i could give an, a, a straight answer i mean i could i could give a straight answer but though they would be con contradicted by somebody else's sure thing Ian. but you know this is exactly why we had these conversations because there is no black and white answer 
And that's the reason we should talk about it as a, as a group. So, you know what I'm going to do? Actually, this is a perfect time for me to start inviting uh, my colleagues from the audience here to share their comment, insights, or questions on this because I know all of us are probably struggling with this. Uh, I have struggled with this personally, and I have seen this struggle from a lot of people who uh, you know, take my courses, for example, and have the conversation. How do we help them? And I think you guys have, uh, I see a lot of faces in the crowd today who have a lot of insight in this. So I would love to start, uh, you know, invite you and share your thoughts. David, you are on. Please unmute your mic and share what you have in mind. Wow. Thank you. Um, mesmerizing listening to you talk. I, I'm fascinated. Um, what am I, I guess my question is, it seems as if you're in maybe, maybe alluding to that everything is connected, uh, that there's a connectedness to all these things. And, and so, for example, designing the, the right device is one thing, but putting it to use in the real world is another thing where it's used by humans and possibly has software interfaces and all these complications that, mm -hmm. I mean, can you, can you talk to that aspect? Yeah. So what I'm hearing you say, David, is that because things are connected, it's difficult for us to put our finger on, you know, what are the contributing factors for risk and how far we go in terms of reducing risk. So in the context of what we are talking about is we have like things coming from maybe causal factors coming from different directions. And Ian, again, I, I would like to invite your thoughts too, is that you have so many causal factors, maybe use, maybe software, maybe the device, uh, maybe our own work processes, maybe our own policies that contribute to risk. How do we begin to think about, you know, practicability of our risk control measures? I think that's the key point we are talking about. So Ian, any thoughts on that? Yeah. So in, in terms of so, um, say the manufacturer's policy for establishing the, the, the criteria for risk acceptability uh, and and the guidance. I uh, know I keep going back to note uh, the note is still close four point two, but in in terms of say the, the the EU approach, that's that that's prescribed to you. Um, in terms of what this um, uh, uh, what do you call it as 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 far as possible uh, means. With, it means the reduction of risk as far as possible without without obviously uh, mm -hmm. affecting the, the benefit risk ratio. So in terms of like tying everything together, yes, everything everything is connected, um, and I suppose that that's ultimately why this is this is one of the driving factors of the 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 2019 edition of the standard. Mm -hmm. And I hope I'm not giving this at a too high level, but it, it's more of a cyclic process than it is. Here's the device. Yeah, but but that's where the question becomes relevant. How far should we go? How far should we um, go in implementing risk control measures, thinking about practicability? Right. I think that's that's what I'm curious about. But Christy, you have joined us, so I'm gonna invite you to share your thoughts. Please unmute your mic. Sure. Um, so I'm on a I went out for a lunchtime run, so I'm a little winded, sorry. Awesome. Uh, and I don't have the standard right in front of me. Um, but I was recently doing a risk management plan and trying to figure out for myself, for this company I'm helping, really tiny company, uh -huh. we set up their risk acceptability matrix into high, medium, and low, which I know has its own challenges. Yeah. But the way we decide, the, the way we defined the medium category is that those risks are acceptable, but undesirable. It's a low, it's an overall low risk. Okay. Acceptable, but undesirable. And 
if those media like medium risks are able to be reduced in a practicable way they should be reduced and i define practicable just like they do in the tr24971 in this gorgeous way i wish i could tell you exactly the section right now but it's not in front of me no worries where no they worries. say you know where they where they break it down into there's a tech practicability from a technology standpoint so technical practicability and economic practicability yeah. which i know is like this double-edged sword but i love the definition in the in the tr because the economic part basically says like look if you reduce your risk using design controls and it makes your product so expensive that it's obsolete yeah that's not good that's mm-hmm. what economic practicability means don't don't go so crazy with risk control measures that now you've essentially removed the market for your product. You can't sell it. No one will buy it. No one can use it. And that's worse for the patient in the okay. end. Yeah, because there's no benefit. There's no benefit. So and I think then, w- what I'm hearing there is that it's a judgment call, isn't it, Christy? It's a judgment it's not, call to decide how far we need, need to go mm-hmm. to be practicable. And then I love how they also talk about technologically practicable or technically practicable. I can't remember the exact word, but... Yeah. I basically say like if you're putting so many warnings in the warning in the user manual that they're on warning li- or warning um, overload or labeling overload, you know the things so covered like a billboard with warnings, nobody's gonna read them all. Like that's too far. If you're putting so many design controls in that you lose the ability, you lose safety or efficacy because there there's so many steps. It takes so long. It mm-hmm. it takes such intense training or checking of the training that you can't. You don't get the benefit yeah. of the risk. Ins- like, I lo- like if you uh, haven't yeah. read that section of 24971, it is so informative and gorgeous. And there's some yep. examples in there that I love. Thank you for bringing this up, Christy. And I, everybody in the audience, please, it's a very good recommendation. Please review that. Uh, to me, you know, those are good examples, but I, I think there is still a lot that we have to kind of understand. So I'm so happy to see Ed now uh, joining us here. So Ed, Please share your wisdom and insights with us because this is a, a very big point of confusion among our colleagues. So, Ed, please unmute your mic and share um, something on this topic, please. Yes, uh, glad to join in uh, on a topic that Ian has really highlighted one of my um, concerns with people using the standard. Um, Ian referred to the Oxford English Dictionary and um when we write standards, ISO um, has rules for us, and we have to use uh, Oxford English Dictionary as our source uh, for the language. Uh, the standards uh, are written in English first and then translated into French uh, for ISO. And um, it used to be we also had to translate into Russian as well, but that seems to have fallen by the wayside. But Christy brought up an important point that Annex C is where she was talking about in uh, 24971. And I might point out the annexes um, in 24971 are guidance, but also the annexes in 14971 are guidance as well. Mm-hmm. And Annex A that Ian referred to is the rationale for each of the requirements in the standard. So for instance, if there's a requirement in clause, say, 5.4, uh, the rationale 
for uh, that would be found in uh, A2.5.4 mm-hmm. in, in the uh, uh, Annex A uh, in the standard. So if you want to understand more about why those things were implemented, you need to read that. But I always, in fact, I've been teaching a very important class for some regulators uh, the last couple of weeks, uh, and I got one more coming up. But I start out with, you need to understand the definitions of the terms you are using. Um, I didn't use the Oxford Dictionary, Ian, but I went to the Cambridge Dictionary and found that there's 17 definitions for the word risk. And none of the <laughs> definitions are are the one in, in uh, 14971. So um, if you're going to use 14971, you have to use that definition. And, and uh, you need to go there and read that and understand it. And nobody reads um, requirements in one, two, three, and even four. They start at clause five in the yes. standard. That's where risk analysis yes. starts. And you miss a whole bunch of very important stuff to help you understand. Yeah. And then you also need to read the rationale and go to uh, 24971 for guidance in that area. So Yeah, but Ed, this, so is, this very is very important. This is what I will share with you guys, everybody. You know, there is so much information there. I tell you, when I started risk management about 10 years ago, I was overwhelmed. And I know a lot of you in the audience might be feeling that way. And that's exactly why we have these discussions, because we want to talk about them with people who have done this. Ed, Christy, you guys have, Ian, you guys have so much experience because we want to distill this knowledge into practical terms. So I'm going to bring that back because I have only two minutes to discuss this. At the end of the day, how should we read practicability then? Because to me, it's a key decision about when to consider your risk control measures to be sufficient. And if we are challenged that we didn't consider everything that was practicable, how do we respond? As an open question, so anybody who wants to kind of jump in is is welcome to kind of share their thoughts about that. Roger, I'm going to invite you. Uh, don't be shy, guys. There's no right or wrong answer here. This is just for discussion. And uh, I'm actually admitting my ignorance and lack of understanding in front of you in the hope that we can talk a little bit more openly. So, Roger, uh, you're on. Please share your thoughts. Uh, so, Naveen, I'm going to jump in firmly on Christy's side, the way she described it, I'll be even a little bit more mm, it, practical. Oh, good. <laughs> to me, I've been always more more on the technical side of these things when I've worked on them. And uh, I can remember first coming across that word, practicability, and I didn't like it. I can remember trying to write a word in uh, work instruction and was told to take the word practical out and replace it with practicability. Mm-hmm. But to me, the bottom line is a judgment call. If you're, it may be you know, cl- being closer to the technical issues, it's easier for me to, as an individual contributor, to see what's practical to be achieved and what's not. Kind of like Christy was saying, you mm-hmm. have, uh, uh, you know, if you're familiar with highly technical things which can reduce the risk, but you'll never be able to get them into your device. You, you have to know that. Mm-hmm. And, and to me, it's almost a matter of ethics. You're you're making these decisions for ultimately for the patient. And and to me, it's no matter what word you use, it doesn't bother me. We're trying to achieve the right thing 
for the patient and still keep a business going. So uh, that's my two cents. I got it. No, uh, this right. is this is wonderful, Roger, because what you're asking us to consider is think of the patient and think if we have done everything that we could, right? Then make the decision whether risk has been reduced. So, uh, Richard, you have joined us. Please uh, unmute your mic and share what you have in mind on this topic. You know, the, the, I, I'm, I'm so glad to hear this conversation because I have struggled quite a bit with um, practicable. And what I've learned is when I'm working with somebody, it's a lot easier for them to define why something is impracticable and document that. And I use that as a starting point. So mm-hmm. if they're looking at risk controls and they're deciding on whether something can or can't be done and they say it can't, well, write down why. Why is this impracticable? And it seems to be an easier exercise. Uh-huh. Um, because it's a lot easier for management to say why we can't do things. <laughs> that is than seen- to say why we yeah. <laughs> That's such a brilliant insight. I appreciate that, Richard. Thanks for sharing that. And uh, at the end of it, we need to have more collaborative conversation. Maybe somebody say says it's not practicable, but maybe some other people have other ideas. And I think through this conversation, we can really distill it down, right? That's what I'm hearing, it say, hearing you say, Richard. Right, because then once you have it written down, people can evaluate it. Perfect. Now, James, I know you are asking to speak, and I'm trying to bring you on stage, but somehow uh, it's not working. So uh, I apologize for that. But let me, yeah, James, you're on. Finally, you made it. Go ahead, please. Uh, we have uh, just a couple of minutes left. Please unmute your mic and share your thoughts. I've got it. I worked out how to unmute myself. You got it. You got it, James. Thanks for joining yeah. us. Um, folks, uh, background i might come back and do one of these talks with naveen one day but uh, i got into this area because i married a negligible medical negligence lawyer Uh uh-huh and through her i learned kind of a way i think of practical which is a very court focused one which is am i happy to stand up in front of a judge and explain why we did or didn't do something and it's a simple test I like to use. I'm at the end of the process. We've done all our work. We've worked out what the risks are. We've worked out what we can do to mitigate them. And I think, am I happy to stand in front of a judge and explain that? Mm-hmm. Very if I'm nice. not, we need to do some more. Thank you for sharing that, James. I, I think that was a very powerful message. Guys, as always, uh, we always run out of time. This topic is not one and done. I think we will continue our conversations in future discussions, but uh, I want to give a couple of minutes to Ian to think about some closing comments. But first, I want to start by thanking all of you and just share a couple of announcements. Guys, did you know that September 17th was World Patient Safety Day? I did not. So I focused this week on learning more about all the work that is going on in patient safety. So take a moment and think about patient safety and really put into perspective why we do risk management. That's the end goal. Secondly, uh, recording of these conversations are going to be available on my newsletter, as you know. And those of you who are joining for the first time, there's a link in this event page. You can go sign up and uh, receive these recordings and even look up the past discussions. Finally, I want to invite all of you to participate. Raise your hand and say, hey, Naveen, I'm interested. 
and sharing my perspective and views on risk. It's a very open, casual conversation, no prep needed. And many of you have participated in the past. And I know you have given me feedback that this is a lot of fun. So I want you to look at it that way. With that, uh, Ian, please go ahead and share with us uh, any last couple of comments. Well, the last couple of comments. Okay, there was a lot to take in there. Um, I think that the, the legal point would just stand up in front of a judge. That, that, that interests me because I uh, also have an interest in law as well. Um, I mean, I was just, the, the, the legal case on that, the, the, the UK, well, the, the, the English and Welsh legal case on that, um, Anthony Frederick Wilkes and Dupree International Limited came to mind. And I think that's one of the points that I think the judge was getting at. Um, was, was, was everything really, you know, was everything done properly? Um, going back, I suppose, to um, the, the, this, the, the issue around the word practicable and practicability. Um, so in terms of its use in the standard, where the, the, the two times it's only ever used as 7.1 and 7.4, then the guidance in... Um, TR24971 as to what practicability is would be relevant, absolutely. Um, when it comes down to the EU domain where your approach to risk control is prescribed by legislation, mm -hmm. practicability falls out of scope except in one very limited circumstance and that's um, um, under the in vitro diagnostics regulation. Um, but it really, for medical medical devices, general medical devices, it, it, it shouldn't really be something that comes in. Um, apart from when you were thinking about Clause 7.1 or 7.1. Got you. Thank you, Ian. And guys, once again, thanks a lot for joining. This is not the end of this conversation. And uh, you can see why, why we are so excited about these discussions. Because when talking about this in a deeper way with colleagues, we learn a lot more. With that, um, I wish you a very good weekend ahead and look forward to uh, connecting with you again next Friday. Take care, everybody. Have fun. Bye-bye.